Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Sudan, which had been on a path to a democratic transition after the departure from power of dictator Omar al-Bashir, has recently undergone a military coup. Yet massive numbers of Sudanese have poured into the streets to oppose the coup. What comes next? Welcome to International Horizons, a podcast of the Ralph Bunch Institute for International Studies that brings scholarly and diplomatic expertise to bear on our understanding of a wide range of international issues. My name is John Torpy, and I'm director of the Ralph Bunch Institute at the Graduate Center of the City University of New York. Today, we explore the situation in Sudan with Mohammed Osman, a researcher in Human Rights Watch's uh, Africa Division. He joined the organization in late 2018 and covers Sudan for Human Rights Watch. Prior to joining the organization, Osman worked with the Open Society Justice in- Initiative in New York as an REA Nair Fellow working on corruption and advocacy. He started his career as a practicing lawyer in Sudan before working as a legal advisor to Redress and Sudan Human Rights Monitor on its torture and ill treatment project. He's also worked as the legal advisor for the International Committee of the Red Cross uh, in Sudan, focusing on international humanitarian law dissemination among officials and arms carriers. He has a law degree and a postgraduate diploma in human rights from the University of Khartoum, as well as a degree in international human rights and humanitarian law from the University of Essex. Thank you for joining us today, Mohammed Osman. Thanks, John. Happy to be here. And, and I hope I'm pronouncing your, your name reasonably correctly. Absolutely. Great. Thanks. So great to have you with us. Uh, so let me just launch into some questions. I mean, I think the first thing would be simply for you to uh, help our listeners understand what has actually happened in, in Sudan in the past few weeks. You know, what happened to this path to a democratic transition that it seemed to be on after getting rid of Omar al-Bashir, and, you know, what has been the popular response to this coup? So I think the best way to look at it is to start what happened on October 25th. So basically a few hours after midnight, 
um, the social media was flooded with reports of military forces deployed around the capital Khartoum and different reports about randoffs of civilian officials. In a couple of hours, it became obvious that this is a takeover being taking place in, in, in Sudan. Um, and then the first things that people realized that different ministers had been arrested. The prime minister, Dr. Abdullah Hamdok, has well been put under house arrest at that time. The, the road to what we saw on October 25th, of course, um, comes with little surprise, despite, however, still shocking for many people in and outside Sudan. But it was definitely something that many people, especially protesters and pro-democracy groups, had worn off for quite some time. From the 25th up to now, from a rights perspective, I think definitely what we are seeing in terms of the rights situation is a display of repressive tactics by the military. We have so wide range of abuses that include use of lethal force, use of life ammunition, um, violent crackdown on peaceful protesters, um, complete or even severe disruption of the internet services and telecommunication, rounding up civilian officials, activists and journalists, um, many of them still detained in undisclosed location without access to a lawyer or family. So basically, the situation now remains as it is that the military grab power, the civilian government, the cabinet, and the sovereign council, which is a body that was established by the virtue of the transitional agreement, um, representing the military and the civilians, all of them had been dissolved. The military leader, Lieutenant General Burhan, who used to be the chairperson of the state sovereign council, also declared the state of emergency. Um, the last days, he'd been hinting to the possibility that he would move forward with the, what, you know, the so-called civilian-led transition, but however, moving to an appoint a prime, new prime minister and a new sovereign council in place. We're hearing now in the media and from people on the ground, there are a lot of mediation efforts taking place, especially by the UN, the United States and the Troika countries. And in the meanwhile, protesters remain defiant. Couple, they continue to protest in different parts of the country. We saw on October the 30th, large crowds in Khartoum and other cities took to the street, making clear their rejection to the military takeover making clear to the support for democracy and echoing their calls to establish a better, fairer rights respecting country that they always fought for. So this all began really with the, uh, you know, removal from power of Omar al-Bashir. Um, maybe you could talk a little bit about, you know, his rule, his long-standing rule and what it did to the country and, you know, what was expected to come out of that transition. So exactly. So because what we're seeing now with the military takeover, it cannot be isolated from al-Bashir time itself. I mean, those military leaders are or were to be the, the close military commanders to Omar al-Bashir, who let's start with the with one date, which is April 11, 2019. That was the date when the military commanders moved to remove Omar al-Bashir in the pressure of the huge popular movement that was seeking to oust al-Bashir regime. Al-Bashir regime started in 1989. The three decades that many Sudanese had lived under was again a full display of atrocities, human rights abuses, disregard of fundamental rights. It was three decades of 
um, conflict abuse, like abuses related to conflict that been taking place, especially in Darfur and other parts of the country, corruption, embezzlement, and complete deterioration of public services. Human Rights Watch and other organizations have well-documented records of the abuses by the security forces of al-Bashir time. Many of them survived and continued to be functioning, um, whether in terms of the military or in terms of significantly another force that is called the Rabbit Support Forces, um, the RSF, led by Muhammad Hamdan Dagalu Himiti, who is the second person and for many second person in command after Burhan, and for many people is almost a de facto leader um, um, when it comes to the military part. So in the last months of 2018, the there were a couple of protests that took place in different parts of Sudan. And those protests at that time were merely addressing the economic issues in terms of the increase of, of prices of subsidies, um, um, shortages of public services and all of that. Very quickly, the movement turned to demand a political overhaul of the whole system, namely talking or demanding the, the ousting of al-Bashir and his regime. This movement was met ruthlessly by lethal force in forced disappearances, the same tactics that we always saw by al-Bashir. That wasn't the first time that al-Bashir regime faced such large movement, but it was significantly moved forward to establish the alternative political leadership that then after the ousting of al-Bashir in April 2019, engaged in negotiation in terms of transferring of power uh, from the military to the civilians. At that time, protesters were camping outside the army headquarters in Khartoum from April to June. The demand of the protester was complete transfer of power from the civilians to the military. At the same time, those political groups were open to negotiate a power sharing deal at that time, but they didn't reach an agreement. And despite the many assurances that the military leaders at that time made to the public and to the internationals that the protesters sit in will be safe and will not be dispersed. The military forces, especially the rabbit support forces, moved to violently remove protesters um, on June 3rd, 2019. And on, the, on that day and the days followed, it was a full campaign of repression by these forces. Human Rights Watch did its own research um, at the end of 2019, finding that over 120, 150 persons were killed during those attacks, um, there's a wide range of, of those violations that also include unlawful detention, ill treatment, sexual and gender-based violence. And after that, in July, the military and the civilians sat again to negotiate and more or less return back to the same deal that they had disagreements over in terms of sharing the power. One of the key demands to accept that deal was to ensure accountability for past crimes by al-Bashir regime um, including what happened on June 3rd, 2019, key demands in terms of reform, in particular security sector reform. Unfortunately, the last two years, despite some little progress that we saw in terms of moving forward with some of the cases of the killings and abuses, um, in terms of legal reform, Sudan, for example, abolished um, apostasy as a crime, uh, removed some gender discriminatory provisions from its legal system, criminalized FGM, um, ratified key international treaties, um, including the Convention Against Torture. So there were some achievements. But looking at it, you know, in, in, in terms of the bigger picture, 
there was a lot of outstanding tasks that protesters on the ground, human rights groups kept calling both on the civilians and the military to move forward with these reforms. This did not happen. That definitely created huge frustration among those groups. Um, this includes protesters, includes families of victims, survivors, activists, um, and Sudanese from all walk of life. They were quite frustrated about the performance of the government at that time. When we look at it, we, of course, we cannot say there are a couple of things that we need to identify here. The, I was in Khartoum actually almost a month ago myself, and I had different conversations with people, um, including prosecutors, officials, those families of the missing and the victims, the survivors, different range of activists. And it was clear that when we talk about the civilian component of the government, there was a lack of prioritization of reform and accountability. There was a political process in place that focused on different priorities, but not the demands around moving forward with accountability and reform. The military itself uh, was pushing harshly back against any potential for reform, any potential that would limit their power, uh, that would threaten you know, their existing you know, political, economic interests. And at the same time, there was heavy international engagement, um, which you know, in particular the US has been playing a leading role for that. One of the key reasons Sudan has been under sanctions for I think definitely over almost three, two decades, um, in connection to the former regime sponsorship of terrorism and human rights record. And after the removal of the regime, it was a tough negotiation um, between the traditional government and the previous Trump administration in terms of moving forward with lifting those sanctions. The, the engagement that the internationals had at that time focused largely on the economic crisis Sudan was undergoing which was severe. I mean, in terms of inflation, we're talking about 200, 300%. Um, um, we're talking about unstable market prices um, happening within the inherited deteriorated public service sector. So the focus on the economy was reasonable and understanding. Um, and we, many, many people could understand why that focus. But the problem is that happened on the cost, on the account of these demands of reform and accountability. And many reasons of like why human rights groups and protesters were really pushing hard on the international actors to also focus on supporting and sponsoring this agenda is exactly to avoid the moment we are in now. We are talking about military forces that continue to feel that they're enjoying impunity, that they are not enjoying or being or going to undergo any civilian oversight in the future. And at the same time, we are talking about security services who killed those protesters who committed series of abuses, even including in Darfur, having faced accountability. And that definitely created issue and, and an existential threat, to be honest, from our point of view to the whole transition at that time. However, despite of all of these different protests, you know, different demands, different reports, that didn't happen. Um, and basically what we are seeing now um, is something that we hope the international community may rectify and understand that when you put justice at the back burner, that doesn't end well. I mean, despite the fact you can always make um, your political positions and assumptions, but, that can, but removing um, justice from the table in the name of political expediency, that doesn't work. And I think what's happening in Sudan these days should confirm that.
Right. I mean, what sort of intrigues and puzzles me in a way is that despite the kind of climate of repression that you've described, you know, that existed for two to three decades under Bashir, um, you know, nonetheless, you have this situation in which there's a military coup and yet, you know, massive numbers of people pour out into the streets and seem to be imposing a kind of limit on, you know, how far the military can go in, in, you know, in doing what it's trying to do. So that seems to me as an outsider, you know, kind of a puzzle. I mean, how do you understand that? How do you think that happened? I mean, 30 years of a dictatorship living under that kind of, those kind of conditions tend to, you know, undermine the creation of civil society groups and this kind of civil opposition. And yet, you know, here it is. How, how should we understand how that happened? Exactly. I mean, this is a very good point. I mean, especially if you would look regionally into other contexts, for instance, the Sudanese civil society, you know, in the largest um, meaning of what civil society means, has been quite vibrant and quite active in, in pushing against the authoritarian regime of Omar al-Bashir. I mean, of course, there was a moment of like, we could say like a breeze that happened during that regime which a couple of years that followed the signing of the comprehensive peace agreement between Sudan as a government and the Sudan Liberation Army movement, which now seceded and became South Sudan. And in these couple of years, of course, there was a little bit of a space of like, you know, political and civic rights. And that also added to the momentum of the civic space and civic um, civil society groups and also for political parties to engage um, more collectively on different issues. And, and I think when you look at the moment of the protest, I mean, of course, right, and this is what happened in 2018, what I said earlier, wasn't the first. We saw the same thing happening in 2013, mostly also triggered by hard-hitting economic reform policies um, and austerity measures. And it was the same reaction. Security forces respond ruthlessly, um, almost in this like shock and awe approach, you know, killing, abusing as much as possible in the fastest period of time thinking that would crack down, scare people, pushing back to their houses. And that sometimes that might happen. The movement clearly kept organizing itself over and over the last years. I mean, people we talk about, who took to the street in 2018-19, people would, you know, it's, we're talking about like between 16 and 25 years old, you know, men and women. Um, this is new generations that were definitely exposed to um, global and regional experience, they were very connected to the political history of Sudan when you had three different, we had like two revolutions before happened, ousting military dictatorships. So for Sudanese, this is part of a history um, that even, you know, despite how long an authoritarian regime would survive, at the end of the day, Sudanese are able to move forward collectively and remove um, abusers from power. And this is, you know, like even what happened on the 25th with the military takeover, and I think why I mentioned the word shocking for some people, despite all the signs, is four days ago, like four days before the takeover, October 21st, those protest groups took to the street in large demonstrations, make, in making sure that the military would not move to do this step. Making clear that the message that, you know, we are frustrated by our government, but we want to ensure that we want to continue walking on the path of rights-respecting country, a democratic country, the country that many people paid with their lives to establish. And for many people thought this is, was a clear message. 
I mean, especially for the Sudanese international community. For the military, they had a different response. Basically, four days after that, they moved to take and grab power. So what we're seeing now, and even now, despite all these restrictions, you know, including the cut of internet services, what we are hearing um, from the ground is the defiance of those protesters, um, the organizations, the social welfare programs that are doing, taking care of each other on grassroots neighborhood-based um, level. And at the same time, making sure that their demands are translated into a political project at the same time. Um, the demands are clear and obvious, so there is nothing really vague about what those people want on the ground. A, they show their clear rejection to the military takeover. They are showing clear rejection to the continuation of impunity that the military was enjoying. They want to make sure that whatever political process in place, it should not happen on the account of these demands that I, re I, I mentioned earlier when it comes to reform and accountability. I mean, with regard to the impunity matter, um, you know, remind me what, what has happened with Omar al-Bashir? Is he not under a kind of uh, indictment of the, uh, of the international court in The Hague? So this is exactly speaks to the matter that, that, that many people are concerned about, which is, you know, the back rolling on the little achievements that happened in the transition. From the start, the transition leaders, you know, verbally committed to the justice process in Sudan, including the international dimension about it. Omar al-Bashir and two other ex-officials, Abdurrahim Mohammed Hussein, who is the ex-defense minister, and Ahmad Haroun, um, who was a former state governor in Darfur, the three of them are indicted and wanted by the International Criminal Court. The, around February last year, the government made clear that they're going to cooperate with the court. However, that remained quite vague about what does that mean. And then for months to come, um, the pace of cooperation increased, but at a very slow rate. Um, you know, like one of the other wanted, um, Ali Kushayb, um, voluntarily surrendered himself to the court last year. So that gave a little bit of hope that the process may start at the hate when it comes to the victims um, of the multiple crimes that Bashir and his bandits committed in that work. Al-Bashir, so domestically, Al-Bashir was undergoing a trial for corruption. And also now, I mean, before the takeover, he was also undergoing another trial for his role and participation in his 1989 coup. Those two cases are not really addressing the human rights record that Al-Bashir and his associates committed. And it became concerning that um, these process, processes may hinder the possibility of holding Al-Bashir accountable whether domestically or internationally. I mean, for sure, just to clarify, Sudan is under a legal obligation to hand over Bashir and the others to the Hague, um, according to the Security Council resolution. However, under the Rome Statute, um, which governs the court in the Hague, um, countries are allowed, I mean, the, the, the ICC is a, is, is a court of last resort, which means that if a country would show the willingness and the ability what they call the complementarity test, have showed that willingness and the ability to hold fair trials to those indicted domestically, then they would be allowed. However, what we see the justice institutions in Sudan, they were not really undergoing any reform, and the authorities themselves didn't say that we're going to try to share domestically. However, they hinted to that over the time. I think a couple of months ago, we saw the cabinet of ministers voting to hand over Bashir and others to the court. 
One of the problems that we saw that because of the absence of legislative council in Sudan, um, a joint temporary mechanism to approve such decision is a joint meeting between the civilians and the military. And the military, according to what we hear, kept pushing those meetings for some time, um, creating that backlog of, of, of agenda items, which includes one of them is the handing over for Bashir. So, of course, this takeover might be triggered by different elements, but one of the straightforward impacts is, is, is the hindrance of the justice process, whether for domestic um, accountability or for the international one. I see. So I, I wanted to get back to the, uh, you know, international sort of context and, and the American role that you referred to before. I mean, you know, there's much talk, as I'm sure you know, about a kind of, uh, you know, withdrawal of the United States from the Middle East and a shift away from terrorism as a kind of principal concern uh, of foreign policy. And Sudan, uh, you know, has been seen in that kind of context uh, because Sudan has been a staging area for some Islamic terrorism and that sort of thing. Um, and now there's this generally thought to be this kind of shift to a focus on China. Um, so I wonder if you could say, you know, how much is that playing a role in what's going on in, you know, within Sudan itself and what is the United States doing with regard to the coup? Uh, I believe some positive noises came out of Washington that, you know, this sort of thing couldn't be, uh, you know, allowed to happen and that sort of thing, but how much it's actually played a role in, you know, trying to put an end to the coup. I, I you know, I'd be interested to hear you tell us. So basically, I mean, couple of hours um, before the military takeover took place, um, Jeffrey Feldman, the UN, the, the US special envoy to the Horn, was in Khartoum. And different envoys, including from the UK, were in Khartoum to discuss the political tensions. And from the media reports we saw, um, they made clear that, you know, to warn the military that to respect the transition, uh, to ensure the transition is going to achieve its intended goals at the end, the military provided all the assurances that, yes, there are some complex dynamics with the civilians, but they would hope to solve this in a peaceful manner. One or two hours when Feldman was flying out of Khartoum, the, the military takeover took place. So that in itself was, a, was one of those indicators about the, the, the role that played by the internationals um, may not be enough to deter the military from such a step. Of course, as you mentioned, there was a lot of words of condemnation came from DC, from London, from other places, from the European Union. And at the same time, we saw the same words warning the military not to move forward with measures that would undermine the transition to ensure respect to the right to peaceful protest. On October 30th, as I just mentioned earlier, um, the military also showed disregard to that and killed three protesters and angered a lot across the country. Um, so it's clear so far what we're seeing that despite the positive words of support to Sudanese people, uh, there are a couple of things that we, we need to highlight here. One, that it's clear that when you deal with human rights perpetrators who for long enjoyed that feeling of impunity, words of condemnation may not be enough. And there is an urgent need to draw some sort of a red line in place. There is a need for that set of action that would show the military that there will be consequences for abuses. And that applies at the same time now when we talk about the political negotiations in place. 
mean, as human rights watch, we don't have the mandate to comment on questions around legitimacy or political processes, but it's important for us as well. This is the call that people are making in Sudan that the voices of those protesters should not be dismissed from the political process. I mean, those voices that demand justice and accountability are principled. And one of the things we saw throughout the transition, as again, I said about why the, the, the engagement of the international in the last two years wasn't that sufficient and failed to meet the demands around reform and accountability, it's, it's, it's very important that this approach should be revisited when now approaching this political negotiations. Because any, any political process that would allow perpetrators to be off the hook in the name of whatever, in the name of stability, in the name of, as I said, political expediency, it wouldn't work and it would backfire. I mean, what happened October 25th is a result of that, or more or less is a result of, 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 of the approach that the internationals had. I mean, so far there are different reports, you know, the different conversations happening on the ground. I mean, it's really concerning. I mean, A, we don't have, we have this internet being still cut in Sudan, so we don't really understand what's happening in a real time base, um, especially from the, from the protest groups. Um, at the same time, there is a lack of transparency of the conversations, what's happening behind closed doors. And that's why we are trying always to make sure that when we're doing our, you know, conversations with diplomats, governments, um, actors in and outside the country, that these principal demands for accountability, for reform, including security sector reform, should be included as, as much the protesters on the ground actually want. So basically for the, for the short term, we would, we would want to see a bigger role uh, for international actors that is positive and is actionable, that ensure for the, for the short term period or for the meanwhile, that the military stop its abuses, um, halt on arrests, release all the political detainees that have been detained since October 25th, and um, allow the restoration of internet and telecommunication services to make sure Sudanese people are actually able to freely exercise their right and express their opinions about whatever political shape and future they want and demand for their country. And then for whatever political process to take place by the support of the US, or the internationals should then be built on the principled calls of, of reform and justice and accountability. So as you speak, uh, I'm reminded of the fact that a few months back, we actually did an interview with, you're speaking to us from Berlin, which I think I forgot to mention at the outset, but uh, I'm reminded of the fact that a few months back, we had a conversation with the recently departed a uh, German ambassador to Ethiopia discussing, you know, developments there, the Tigray and Liberation Front, etc. cetera. Uh, and of course, now the news seems to be that they're moving south and heading towards the capital, um, you know, increasingly, it seems, in striking distance of taking power in the central government. So I just wonder, I mean, it's, you know, Sudan's near abroad, so to speak. I mean, does this affect developments in Sudan in any particular way? I mean, yes. I mean, one of the things with the whole region, I mean, we all understand these regional dynamics. Um, I mean, there was a part of your question asked earlier about, you know, also dynamics related to terrorism, for instance, right? So like there are a lot of dynamics that has been definitely influenced by the transition and the take and potentially by the takeover. 
But let's take, you know, the regional dynamics. I mean, of course, the situation in Ethiopia has been worrying and deteriorating for a very long time. The, the dynamics between Sudan and Ethiopia also changed. Of course, right, on, like, on the outset, when the transition was trying to take shape after the removal of al-Bashir, Ethiopia was heavily engaging into negotiating between the civilians and the military. That shifted a bit after the AU moved to lead on the mediation. Um, and for a long time, the Sudanese government, the Ethiopian government, maintained a calm relationship that sort of exploded at the early stages of the conflict in Ethiopia, when when Sudan engaged in the border clashes with the Ethiopian forces and militias, um, which is like long, like probably like long decades um, border dispute that wasn't really um, growing to the surface till like that time at the beginning of the conflict in Ethiopia. Um, of course, there is the issue around the Renaissance Dam, um, which also affect the, the positions of different components in, in the government at the same time. I mean, there is a growing analysis that the military component in the government as aligned with Egypt was more taking a hardline position against Ethiopia in that regard, while the civilians um, with their own ties to, to Ethiopia at that time were more accepting like kind of the mediation to take its course um, peacefully. Um, of course, now that changed, so potentially that would have its own impact on you know, the stability in the region or the, you know, any potential negotiations around the, the dam in Ethiopia, for instance. Um, again, also like terrorism is something that, as I mentioned, Sudan was sanctioned because of its sponsorship of terrorism. I mean, regardless if it's true or not. That was just a fact right. of why the U.S. moved to impose these sanctions. Two months ago, or even less, there was also different incidents in Khartoum where security forces to um, engage in, in, in gunfights, you know, in the middle of the day, in the middle of like, like residential areas in the capital with alleged members of ISIS. Um, however, that for, for some monitor that was seen as part of the campaign that the military in Sudan was trying to paint in terms of being the guardian and the savior of Sudan, the protector you know, of the region when it comes to, to terrorism. I mean, we all understand how counterterrorism becomes also like a very winning policy card for some dictators and autocrats in terms of allowing or justifying certain abuses in the name of fighting of counterterrorism. I mean, from our perspective, any, 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 any kind of engagement with counterterrorism will have to adhere to like you know, human rights principles, to national law, national law. Again, that speaks to the problem in Sudan that these forces did not undergo any reform which allow transparency or would allow civilian oversight. So yes, of course, with, with, with these shifting dynamics in mind, and of course that may affect the, the, the engagement of the internationals when they talk to the military or the civilians, and again, I mean, we definitely, we may sound as a broken record because every time, you know, something like that happens, it's like, oh yeah, but like ensure that you're not pragmatic in a way that throw justice out of the window, throw reform out of the window, because that will not lead to stability if the people in Sudan wouldn't accept, you know, whatever the shape of the future that is. Um, and they feel that the internationals, because of shifting regional dynamics, uh, want to move this direction. Um, again, is the, the, you know, the demands for justice and reform, I think we're just going to end up in a very um, concerning situation at the end of the day.
Well, thank you. So maybe one last question, just simply, you know, what do you think is going to happen in the next, you know, few months to a year? Uh, can you give us some sense of what you, what we should be looking for? What would be hopeful signs? I mean, the situation is very moving. I mean, between this morning and now talking to you, there probably a lot of, you know, events happen, you know, different changes, different statements. So it's a very, very different, uh, very fast moving situation. However, I think yesterday the um, the head of the UN mission in Sudan um, mentioned that the potential of deal should be a matter of days, not weeks, because the situation um, won't be able to sustain itself if there is no political breakthrough happening soon. Nonetheless, um, of course, right, I think we would hope to see the rights um, Sudanese to protest um, be respected. We would hope that there is no backrolling um, or backtracking on whatever achievements happened during the transition. And it's for the Sudanese at the end of the day to decide which direction they would go. So, so it's, it's hard to tell um, with all of these moving pieces here and there. At least the indicators we see in the media seems to be multiple initiatives are taking place. But we are also at a time when we should be also fully aware of misinformation that could take place, especially when the military is controlling that access to TV and social media. So, so it's very difficult to have a verified um, updates that could you know, inform our understanding about how the situation is going. But for sure, I mean, today there was a um, special session of the Human Rights Council to talk about Sudan. We already saw the AU suspend the membership of Sudan, I think over a week ago. Um, there is a joint statement for the National Security Council. I think the last thing I would want to say that while these different steps are a good start, the time, you know, the clock is ticking, the, it's, it's, it's important that um, actions become faster um, in terms of allowing Sudanese to you know, express their rights, but also making sure abuses um, ceasing from happening. Great. Well, thank you so much for those remarks. And I want to say that's it for today's ep episode. I want to thank Mohamed Osman for sharing his insights about the fast-moving situation in Sudan. Remember to subscribe and rate International Horizons on SoundCloud, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts. I want to thank Meryl Sovner for helping put together today's episode. To thank Risto Voinov, as always, for his technical assistance and as well to uh, acknowledge Duncan McKay for sharing his song, International Horizons, as the theme music for the show. This is John Torpy saying thanks for, very much for joining us, and we look forward to having you with us for the next episode of International Horizons.